James Accord was a unique artist. I know, by definition, most artists are unique, but Accord had the distinction of being the only private citizen to obtain a license to handle nuclear material. Accord was a successful sculptor, and after the Three Mile Island meltdown in 1979, he became interested in the idea of using nuclear materials in his work. He thought that sculptors should work with the technology of their era. He felt, like it or not, we are in the atomic age. Nuclear materials are not the easiest to come by. At first, Accord collected fiesta ware. These were dishes that first came out in the 1930s and had a uranium glaze. At his studio, Accord developed a method for separating the uranium from the dishes. This caused him to be in a little bit of trouble with the Washington State Office of Radiation Control. He had sent them a small amount of his fiesta ware millings to be analyzed. Uh, they saw that they were radioactive and refused to return them to him. But Accord was determined, and a year and a half later, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission ruled that restrictions do not apply to ceramics. He got his millings back, but that wasn't enough. He was diligent about looking for more radioactive material. Eventually, he was offered 12 fuel assemblies with depleted uranium from Germany if he could get the handling license. Accord had moved from Vermont to Richland, Washington to be near the Hanford site and to take classes about handling nuclear material. He hit the library and he started applying for his license. It took two and a half years of writing letters, making presentations to government officials, and making appeals to the American Nuclear Society, but his determination worked. He was granted a license. He was so happy, he had his license number tattooed on the back of his neck. He felt he'd even earned a little respect in the nuclear community. A little. But many people thought he was doing frivolous work and ultimately wasting materials. And it wasn't just in the nuclear community that Accord was a controversial figure. People in the art and environmental communities thought he was giving credibility to an evil technology. Accord saw artists and engineers as akin to each other. Both spend their time trying to make things. As for art and science, they were parallel paths in which humans seek knowledge and understanding. He said, and I'm quoting here, I can't help feeling that today's nuclear industry is not unlike the church of the 12th and 13th centuries. We have a priesthood living in remote areas, interacting only with each other. Yet these are the people who make the decisions for you and me. Once he had his license, he was able to receive the 12 fuel assemblies from Germany. He convinced scientists at Hanford to let him store them on site. All in all, he spent about 15 years living near Hanford, but ultimately moved to Europe, where he found more people were interested in his work. A university in England gave him access to a small-scale reactor. Accord passed away in 2011 and wasn't able to create his most ambitious idea. He wanted to build a nuclear stonehenge at Hanford. His vision was a sculpted park to show future generations what we've done. Welcome to Down by the River, Stories of Hanford. My name is Danny Noonan, and I'm with Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. Each month, we bring you stories about Hanford, once the facility that produced plutonium for the U.S.'s vast nuclear weapons arsenal, and now the focus of the largest environmental cleanup project in the world. Many of the key players in the history of Hanford have been scientists, military personnel, politicians, tribal leaders, and activists. But then there are the artists and poets that draw inspiration not only from the atomic age, but specifically from Hanford. They give us empathy for the people involved and provide new perspectives on the daunting aspects surrounding Hanford. This month, I wanted to highlight two artists that have incorporated Hanford into their work. Elizabeth Heffron is a playwright in Seattle. Besides writing, she teaches playwriting at the Cornish College of the Arts. 
She's currently working on a play about a young couple that works at Hanford. I'll let Elizabeth take it from here. Um, And it's the story of uh, a couple. They're both workers, Hanford workers, and she works on the tank farms. And so she gets exposed in an accident, and um, the play is about what happens. Uh, The first act takes place over the course of the first 24 hours after the exposure. And then the second act is takes place over the weeks and months that unravel after that. Um, and what happens with her in terms of health care, in terms of her relationship with her family and her husband and her co-workers and, uh, and the corporations and her medical care and all that, all that stuff. So, Just going to jump in here for a second for those of you who don't know. The tank farms are places at Hanford where workers monitor the 177 underground tanks that are currently storing 56 million gallons of highly radioactive and chemical waste. Uh, now back to Elizabeth. So the people in this play are uh, fictional, but they are definitely influenced by the people I've met and the people I've talked to. So. The main characters are uh, a young couple who are in their late 20s, early 30s, named Chip and Linnea, and they both work. Um, they both work at Hanford. She definitely she's an operator and she works on the tank farms. He's more he does more construction kind of stuff. He's a little bit lower level in terms of where he's at. Um, there's also a person who kind of, I've had to kind of amalgamate somebody who is with the corporation uh, that runs that part of the farm. Um, and I'm calling them, you know, they're like the Chem 3 Corporation. It's not really a real one. but um, And he, he represents sort of a management place, but also he has to kind of work for PR and just the the. the sort of public front on this and how to go about handling it from a management perspective. Um, And then there's uh, Chip's mother, uh, Tina, who is currently a bartender, but she's going back to school for... uh, to become an actuary because she feels like the only truth there are is the truth in actuarial numbers. <laughs> and so, and she's, uh, she's, she's, she's on a shift at a bar when uh, her daughter-in-law gets exposed and it kind of sends her into pretty interesting interactions with her uh, bar customers. Um, and then also there's uh, another worker named Santiago who at the time of the accident was working the pump, which was, it was a stuck pump and it was the pump that wound up sending, uh, effluvient down a, a water hose rather than out the protected line it was supposed to go out. So, so this is a character, he's Hispanic, uh, he's from Pasco. He, uh, he was on this pump, but it really the accident really wasn't his fault. It's just the whole thing fell apart. But then in the aftermath, they're getting everybody's reports and going every, going through everybody's minutes and timelines and all that kind of stuff. And um, you know, and he definitely gets the feeling they're looking for somebody to um, place a lot of blame on. Um, 
I saw a live reading of the play, and one of the many aspects of it that impressed me was how the character that was representing management was portrayed. Instead of being a villain, which would have been easy, he comes off as a very conflicted person trying to do what is right. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, to me, that's more a reality is the way this is, you know, because I don't think anybody ever feels like, I think I'm going to grow up and, and become somebody who just destroys the planet. You know, I mean, that's not in any way, shape or form what people are doing or even think they're doing. And I, I really feel for people who are in positions of authority in this situation where the structural... Um, the structural nature of this thing is so huge that to turn the ship, to do, to make any kind of change, to deal with the way incentives are are doled out and the way the government works with the private private industry and all that stuff has come from a time like from the 40s and 50s where it was like seat of the pants, let's get this rolling, boom. And, and now we're kind of stuck with this very old, monstrous edifice. And so uh, I, I really think that he thinks he's got the best interests of everybody in mind as much as he can uh, with one arm tied behind his back. And so, and I think it's probably, I mean, if he had his own personal diary, which I, don't, I couldn't put in the play, but I mean, I think there's so much he has to... Uh, find ways of of telling himself what's happening and how I can help, you know. Um, and that's so difficult. But we, but we all do that. There are things we just don't want to look at, you know, from all sides. I had to ask Elizabeth, how does one end up writing a play about a nuclear waste site? So I think I've probably started about seven or eight plays on various aspects of nuclear, the nuclear industry. Um, one on the NRC alone, which is just remarkable, and uh, another one basically about the history of how we wound up with the designs we have, uh, which was so hit and miss and fascinating um, and awful at the same time. So. Uh, but because I live in Washington State and issues around um, the tank farms were really coming out quite a bit and the issues with the workers and not getting compensation and meeting uh, the people at Hanford Challenge, Tom Carpenter and all those guys and you and the WPSR folks, all of that, I, I, uh, I just thought, well, I'd rather do something that's closer to home. Um, and then I wanted something where I could really hang on to the characters because when you're writing a play that's got a lot of technology or science in it, you can put people to sleep like so quickly. So I needed characters that were strong enough and issues that were strong enough, the human issues, to kind of carry an entire play and then, and then expose or explain or illustrate the situation within the world of these characters through their behavior and actions. Um, so I, I think I wound up with the tank waste situation because one, it's pretty, you know, pretty awful. Uh, second, it's how we're dealing with the workers once they're exposed and what happens to their friendships and 
who they're considered after the fact. They become a, a liability and a little bit of a problem, possibly. They're looked on. You don't know what they're going to do next, you know. And they don't know what's going to happen to them. They don't know what's going on with their bodies. You know, they're, um, it's just so, it just throws people into such uh, a crazy state. Um, there's more plays you could do on Hanford. I mean, the whole thing around the vitrification plant, um, Walt Thomasitis is a hero, and somebody just do a movie on that guy, you know. I mean, I mean, and everybody working on it. Um, I don't know. It's just fascinating. Um, so when I when I finally decided on what I wanted to do, partly it came out of having read some of the court's transcripts uh, that Hamford Challenge had about a guy named Dan who had been exposed uh, to tank waste. Uh, it had gotten on him, and I can't remember what year it was, like 2008, 2006, I could be totally wrong about this, but he wound up basically dying about five or six years later, and he never got any uh, compensation, and it was to- it was definitely due to whatever was in the tank. Uh, and so I didn't want to work from that particular accident, but I used it as a prototype for what could go down. And then I've gone over and I've interviewed a whole bunch of workers. The Cascades are a mountain range that create a physical divide between Western Washington and the rest of the state. But there's also a cultural divide. Earlier in our conversation, Elizabeth called herself a 206er, referring to Seattle's area code. I asked her, how did it feel to cross the mountains and write about a community that she was not a part of? Well, that's the first. The first time I heard the term 206er was uh, over in central Washington, because I did, I was hired to write a, a pageant uh, in Leavenworth on the history of central Washington that would include from the Indians, you know, from the, uh, the Yakimas and the Wenatchee Indians all the way up through the fire of 1992 or 94. There was a huge fire that surrounded that area. And I was hired uh, to write a pageant that would incorporate all kinds of folks from that area. So I moved over there for about three weeks and just met everybody. This was through One Real Productions and uh, interviewed people. I, I wound up with, within about a month, I felt like I knew more people in central Washington than I did in Seattle. It was, it was actually really lovely, but I met all the loggers. I met the people that had wanted to secede Chelan County from the union over the Growth Management Act. Um, I met a lot of the environmentalists. I met, you know, the merchants in the town of Leavenworth and the people that told me, like, how they became Bavarian, you know, just how all that worked. So um, I got some experience doing that, and and I was also really aware of how um, cultures are so specific. So, So when I was going to work on this play, I read a lot. I read a lot of the transcripts, did all that, but then it was, I can't say how helpful it was to have um, Hanford Challenge bring me over there, and then I would go to all the meetings, all the public meetings, and through those meetings, I met a lot of former workers and current workers um, and some of the whistleblowers, and then I was able to interview people over there and get a sense of the place and just sort of live there for a while. 
Um, I now have a family member over there, so I I can go over and stay there in Kennewick. And so, but uh, but I needed to really just be there and listen, you know, and not kind of come over with a whole bunch of uh, judgments or things that I thought about the thing. And it it's it was eye opening and really fascinating. And then when we had we had a reading of the piece. At ACT, we've had a couple of readings, and, I, and it, what's been wonderful is having some of those workers and the whistleblowers and, and then um, advocates and activists come and see the play, And because uh, I really wanted to know if there's anything I'm getting wrong about how things work and how people would react and stuff like that. So it was great to have their uh, feedback and reactions and... I love my my favorite friend who said, you know, I know every guy you base those characters on. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that sounds good. So, Back in 2014, soon after Elizabeth's play had its first public reading, which was at the Act Theater in Seattle, workers at Hanford's tank farm started reporting being exposed to chemical vapors. Now, Elizabeth's play is about an accident that happens at the tank farms, which is different than what was happening at Hanford. But the aftermath was eerily similar to her play. The tanks at Hanford are not completely covered, and they were emitting vapors that workers were being exposed to. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail now, because that could be a podcast on its own, which it will be in the future. Uh, When these stories started to appear, I couldn't help but think of Elizabeth's characters. I asked her how she felt when she read about real people going through what she'd put her own characters through. Well, it's very interesting because you go back and you look through all the various records and you read about, um, and even someplace like Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility or Hanford Challenge, which used to be called something else that I don't remember. If you go back and you look through the various case studies, um, you keep going back and you realize the same things are happening over and over. Um, so even though there's a sense of trying to solve it, but, but when solving it means it's going to cost more money and then funding gets cut, well, boom, the answer to that is to go back to the way it was when it didn't cost more money, which then causes more problems, you know. So, so um, there's sort of an intractable nature to it that felt like, and I've said it in the past, I said it in 2010, because I thought, well, you know, who knows what will happen in the next few, you know, months or years, and hopefully, you know, everybody will have to wear respiration stuff and, you know, something else. But the nature of of how the problems work once they're exposed, whether it's this particular problem or something that happens at the vitrification plant down the line, you know, um, the way we respond, the human response to those kinds of emergencies uh, doesn't change much. So I I think that that makes uh, a play about that kind of thing. Uh, It's not a one-time deal. This is this overwhelming, continuously evolving Situation, And so it feels to me like it's not going to be, there's going to be no line in the sand where it stops for a while, for a long while. I mean, that's the way I'm seeing it. Once you hear about Hanford or get involved in some way, it's hard not to be involved anymore. I asked Elizabeth if her involvement with Hanford extends beyond writing the play. 
I don't know. It's just been such a an amazing journey just to go through the process of creating this play and the characters and what happens. And I still feel like I discover more every time I go in there. So I'm still kind of tweaking it and uh, working on trying to get some of the tech information down. I fall in love with the tech stuff myself, you know, so that makes it hard. But um, but. But explicating anything that doesn't actually, you know, extricating anything that doesn't actually need to be there um, is something I'm working on. But I just found the whole journey. And it's like I'm not ever leaving this journey. I mean, now that I've written this play, I feel like I have even more responsibility for continuing to help somehow get the word out or... Uh, support programs like you guys and Hanford Challenge that are working to keep a sort of a citizen's response to the situation so that it stays open and transparent as much as it can be. Because um, to me, transparency is everything. the Seattle band Tangerine when I heard a song of theirs on the radio. It caught my ear not only because of the dreamy pop hooks of the guitar playing, but also because of its title, Hanford Riviera. I spoke with Marika. She sings and plays guitar for Tangerine and wrote the song Hanford Riviera. Back in 2013, Tangerine made some headlines when they released the song with the lyrics about Hanford. There aren't too many songs about Hanford. I asked Marika when she first learned about Hanford. I probably heard about it growing up in Seattle, but... Um, about the time that the band was forming, I and I don't remember the details, but I read an article. It had to do with Jay Inslee, the governor, saying that um, that there was like, radi- like radioactive material leaking into the groundwater near the base. Um, you'll tell me if that's if I'm remembering that correctly or not. But that was pretty alarming to me because that sort of thing is just not something you imagine happening close to home. So it stuck with me. Judging by when she wrote the song, the news she read was when Governor Jay Angley spoke at a press conference where he announced six of Hanford's 177 underground tanks were leaking. A week earlier, the public was told one tank was leaking. But after meeting with Energy Secretary Chu, the governor learned that it was in fact six leaking tanks. Five of these tanks were built between 1943 and 1944. The sixth tank was built in the 1950s. No one expected them to still be needed over 60 years later. I got, I got to tell you, you couldn't find a more perfect radioactive storm. Governor Jay Inslee took the feds to task for the hundreds of gallons of radioactive sludge leaking at the Hanford nuclear facility. And the fact that, uh, you know, we've experienced leaks before should not, in my view, be any excuse or license to get out of jail for the federal government. The federal government says there is no immediate threat to people from the leaking tank, and experts say the sludge may not make it to the Columbia River. That's little comfort for long-time critics. I think that it stayed in my consciousness for a while, and I didn't even expect to write the song about it as I was writing it. The song did begin as a conventional sort of love song, 
And after a while, I was like, well, this is a little boring. And it wasn't actually about anything real either. It was sort of like a perfunctory sort of songwriting session. And I decided, okay, I want to make this go a little deeper. And I realized that that awareness of Hanford had been sort of lingering in my mind in a way that you could almost say was sort of like this under, like underlying paranoia. And so I wanted the song to capture that. So at its surface, it sounds really sweet and sugary. And, you know, it's like about this romance on the Hanford Riviera, but it's supposed to be sort of a reflection of the danger that's lurking there. I asked Marka if she did any research into Hanford before she wrote the song. Yeah, I didn't do any research into it. I mean, I think later I did. But, um, and I even thought about going on one of those tours that they offer down there, but it's kind of a drive, so I haven't done that yet. But no, I really wanted it to be about what it's like to be someone who really wishes they knew more about like the issues of the day that are really affecting the planet, but like you don't. And I think a lot of my friends, a lot of people I know are in that position where they are interested in fixing these kinds of issues, you know, they're, they're voting for progressive candidates, but they don't really, they feel sort of helpless you know, because you don't really know how you as an individual can really affect change. There's a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions about Hanford. It's quite the political issue. I asked her if she told her bandmates what she was writing her song about before she presented it to them. Yeah, um, I write the lyrics on my own, and it's sort of a personal process. You know, it's kind of like, you know, reading poetry to someone is, like, really awkward. So I usually just start singing it in practice, and after they've heard it a little while, then they'll ask me about it, and I'm a little more comfortable talking about it. Um, I think everyone in the band was really excited about the subject matter, especially after it resonated so strongly with people. I mean, that was just a combination of we had never really reached a fan base before, and at the same time, that song like took off with a community that wasn't necessarily a music community as well. So it was like a really, really enriching experience, you know, to talk to NPR or to like have recognition from the governor just about the issues we were speaking about. I think everyone really enjoyed that experience. I asked her if the band does an introduction to the song when they play it live. Yeah, I, I don't do an introduction to it. I mean, I think we don't play it anymore. In fact, then I was a little more afraid to, to talk on stage. <laughs> but um, I think a couple of times we've joked about it because the, um, the governor ended up tweeting at us about it. So we've been like, oh, hey, like this one's for our friend Jay Inslee. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I don't really, I don't like when people sort of use music as a means to lecture. It's not wrong, but for me, I don't enjoy that. I'd rather have someone listen to it later and sort of the lyrics start to like seep in on repeated listens. It's not every day that the governor mentions a band on Twitter. I asked her if she was expecting any of the attention that the song brought to her and her music. I think I knew that that was a possibility. Um, I guess because I don't know much about it. Like I'm not, you know, I didn't want to pretend I knew more than I did. Um, but I think my goal was sort of to reflect the fact that, you know, a lot of my friends and I, I guess we're millennials, is what you would say. I don't know are pretty aware of things like climate change and the like, destruction of the planet and, you know, things that messes that we've made that we don't know how to clean up. And I wanted the song to be, kind of reflect just like that vibe of we're living in this world and, you know, we're focusing on maybe our everyday lives and we're not scientists. And yet we're like constantly stressed out by the fact that we know that we've sort of trashed the planet. <laughs> and that's really 
on a larger scale what the song was about and then Hanford was the specific issue that I decided to just go into with that because it's the one that was closest to home at the time. interesting things about Hanford is that you never hear of it. And then once you have, you see it mentioned everywhere. It's like you can't escape it. I wonder if she felt like that. So I think since writing the song, um, I have become more aware of it. I don't know if I go looking for it, but it's pretty much impossible to ignore, you know, if there's a headline about it or something related. And of course, you know, there's been like the the I guess fallout is an unfortunate pun, but just the ramifications from Fukushima as well is just you know, the issue is definitely there, and it's you can't really ignore it, especially once you've acknowledged it. And what were her final thoughts on Hanford? I don't know what to do about this issue, <laughs> so I don't know how much I've contributed to it, but I'm glad that, you know, I could at least be a part of not letting it just slip from people's minds. And that has been another episode of Down by the River, Stories of Hanford. As I said earlier in the program, there are many people that have been inspired by Hanford to create art. In fact, there's a whole traveling art and science exhibit focused on Hanford and Washington State's role in the nuclear age. It's called Particles on the Wall. It'll be on display at the University of Washington's Bothell campus at Mobius Gallery this April and at the Reach Interpretive Center in Richland, Washington in late summer, early fall 2006. It is an amazing exhibit. And full disclosure, Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility is a co-sponsor of the exhibit, along with its curators and co-founders. You can visit the website, particlesonthewall.org, for more information, as well as a chance to see some of the art, read the poetry, and science and historical facts. I want to thank Elizabeth and Marika for being interviewed. If you want to know more about Hanford, you can always go to our website, wpsr.org, and then to the Hanford tab. There you can find transcripts of the show, as well as ways to stream or download this podcast via iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you have any questions, comments, or stories of your own, please contact me at daniel at wpsr.org. I hope you tune in next month when we'll explore the role of several agencies who are responsible for cleaning up Hanford. Thanks for listening.